If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 564. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Where there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Where it's always free to enroll, get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. Purchase a course or 20 there. Keep this podcast free of charge. Click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get a book plate. If you want my autograph on one of my books, purchase one of my books wherever books are sold online. Also, click on that shop tab. You can uh, buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know that you like it. That gets more listeners. Share it around on social media. That gets more listeners. We need people abandoning Alexander Hamilton, John Marshall, Abraham Lincoln. We need that to go away. We need people thinking locally and acting locally. We need people embracing the local, right? That's the important thing. So do all those things to get people interested in the show. Send me those show requests. I really do appreciate that. It's the last Brian McClanahan show of the week. Before we get started, I want to answer a couple of questions just on the on the uh, podcast because people have asked me, uh, who is that guy behind you? There's a bobblehead behind me next to uh, the bobblehead of Robert E. Lee. That is a one-of-a-kind bobblehead. That is James Byard. Uh, so James Byard is who I wrote my dissertation on in graduate school, so to get my doctorate. Uh, but that's a James Byard bobblehead. The other thing people have asked is about the music that I, the bumper music, the the intro and outro music uh, for the show. Uh, those are both Brian McClanahan show originals, so I didn't I didn't play them, but they are originals, so you cannot get them anywhere else. But uh, you, that's where they come from. They're just they're made for this show. So uh, those are a couple of things people have asked about, and I want to just answer those here. And that way, if you ever if you don't know and you go you know, oh somebody asked, so you can point back to episode. Uh, 564, so they know that they're there. All right, I want to wrap up the week with an article that appeared in GQ. And uh, this article is entitled, Why America is at War Over the History of Slavery. And this was published in December. Um, What's interesting is that, you know, all of the things that are going on right now with the 1619 Project, with memory studies, all of that, what I think is happening is interesting is people are finally realizing that the war is the holy grail in American history. I love talking about the founding period, but really what happened in 1861 is that a new America was founded. 1862, as I mentioned yesterday, by 1862. 1861, we're seeing a new America. And it's a new America because of the expanse of federal power. But not just that, we started seeing a reinterpretation of how America, American history was going to be taught. And Southerners recognized this very early on. They knew it. Right after the war was over, they started saying, wait a second here. You've got these people coming down here telling us that 
all the things in America has always been nationalist. America's always been this. America's always been that. And that's just not right. It's not right. The North won the war. And I think this is, this is important. They understood history was a weapon. And they were trying to institutionalize that in America. The Lincolnian myth. This is what they were trying to do. There were Northerners who rejected that in the 1880s and 1890s. And next week, I'm going to get to a piece that was in, uh, uh, published in the Harvard uh, student paper, I believe it was. And we'll talk about Lee next week. Next week is uh, uh, Lee Jackson week uh, across the South. But uh, this idea that the war is the, is the turning point, and it is, right? It's a turning point. And Again, Southerners have known this for a long time. I think other Americans are finally waking up to this uh, and, and, re and recognizing how important the war is for our collective consciousness, for our understanding of America, for where we are. And all that 1619 has done is just put that kind of in your face and saying, this is, this is our interpretation of it. It's when I talked about earlier this week with Reconstruction and W.B. Du Bois and Eric Foner. It's putting that in your face. And so we've had a week of Foner and uh, nationalism and 14th Amendment. Here we're going to wrap it up with this piece by Wesley Lowry. And he says some really interesting things in here. Not because he's right, but because this is where the left is going with this. I like to put these pieces out there because you need to understand where these people are going and where they're getting this stuff from. So it says, a few years ago, Clint Smith told me about a new project that would take him to a series of historical sites from Monticello to Angola, prison to the door of no return in Senegal, to re-examine how these sites commemorate and too often obfuscate their role in the horror that was American slavery. Now first, just look at the language being used here. Monticello is as bad as a west, co west coast of Africa slave port, Right? The horror that was American slavery. There's no distinction anymore in any way about what's... I mean, there's no Genovese in this. There's no nuances. There's no Fogel and Engerman. There's none of that. It's just uh, Beecher's and uh, all the other abolitionists. That's their version of what America was. And that's it. There's no... Genovese was very clear about the bad things of slavery. He never said slavery was ever any good. And that's important to note. But he was always at least willing to give Southerners their due, right? That these people weren't monsters. They weren't monsters. And that American slavery was different from other forms of slavery throughout the world. It was certainly different than uh, if you say American slavery. Now, are you talking about all of America or just the United States? Because slavery in the U.S. was vastly different than it was in the, in the Caribbean. Vastly different. Or in Brazil. where I mean, it was vastly different than those places. So which one are you talking about here? That's important to note. And then you have the... Uh, uh, the book uh, by Thornton, which talks about the African involvement in the trade and how important they, they, they defined it all. They set the terms. They acquired the slaves. They did everything. This was important to their economy. So are we going to be honest about that? Monticello 
doesn't link up to Dahomey, right? They're two different things. Now, four years later, oh, I'm sorry. Smith's aim, he told me, was to search for meaning in the way we tell the story of ourselves. This is a memory study. He actually points it out. He, he started doing this because of David Blight. And I've already ripped David Blight apart on this podcast. And that was funny because uh, I said something on some, I think it was Kevin Cruz when, I was, when he actually hadn't had me blocked. And um, I, I said something in, well, let, uh, how, how about he gives us a nice erudite analysis of David Blight? So I did. I went and I think it was the next podcast. Okay, I'll tell you what I think of David Blight's book. To shut these idiots up. Now, four years later, this that project, How the World Has Passed, a reckoning with the history of slavery across America, is the breakout nonfiction book of 2021, a number one New York Times bestseller and top 10 book of the year, and one of President Obama's annual picks, too. Well, that is a <laughs> that is a uh, what an odd uh, way to say don't read the book. In 2017, I was watching several Confederate statues come down in my hometown, New Orleans, Smith said recently about the impetus of his undertaking. Statues of PGT Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and these, these leaders of the Confederacy. I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. What are the implications of that? Well, uh, what about the enslavers, the black enslavers in New Orleans? I mean... What about that? I mean, did, did you did you go out and really look at that? All the black slave owners in New Orleans, because there were a lot there, uh, too, and uh, you know, uh, that's part of the history of America. But anyways, the project couldn't have been more prescient. As half of the country earnestly searches for a new understanding of our racial history, the other half violently defies it, denies it. No, no, no one's denying anything. No one's denying anything. Half our neighbors are demagoguing critical race theory, while the other half are busy reading it. Smith has bravely stepped into the fray, asking a large swath of the country to soberly consider how their communities and even their own families contributed to our nation's original sin. Original sin? See, the language here is just completely off. Slavery wasn't America's original sin. Slavery had been around for all... <laughs> this is just stupid. It's stupid, the language being used. It's been around for since the history of man, number one. And where is the African part of this, right? Where Africa was part of this process. You have millions of people who are recalibrating their understanding of what America was and what America has been and what America is today, Smith told me. And as a result, you have this incredible amount of pushback from people for whom asking questions of American history is an existential threat to them because they have to ask questions of themselves. See, this is the thing. Well, if you are against us, then you're really just a racist. You're just having to wrestle with racism in your own heart. This is, this is the way the left turns things around. Uh, think about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she was called out for being so pro-mask and then goes on vacations in Florida is never wearing a mask and turns, the, turns it by saying, well, this is just people who want to date me and they can't. And they're, show, they're, they're obsessed with my boyfriend's feet. She, she just completely turns it around to say this is all about some type of psychological game that people on the right just want to date her and they can't, so they're going to they're gonna pick on her all the time. This is just stupid. Well, if you're against critical race theory, if you're against this telling of history, if you're against the way we frame America, 
then you're really just a closet racist. And if you're a closet racist, then you're really just uh, a, a, a 19th century clan member. I mean, this is the kind of stuff they do. It's just so stupid. And I think this is what a lot of Americans think. Like, you're just an idiot. But you know what? That's fine. Uh, it's, it's the, ask these questions. I, I'm fine with asking the questions. In some ways, they're right about things. In some ways, they're not. But in some ways, they are right about things. If you believe in the proposition nation, they're 100% right. If that is America, if America is the proposition nation, then everyone should subscribe to this stuff. I mean, this is what I try to tell the, the conservatives who say America's Lincoln. If, if America is Lincoln, then you should be fully on board with the 1619 Project. Then you should be fully on board with the left. If America is that, then you should be on board with it. Why are you resisting it at all? If America is the proposition nation, then these people are right. But if America is not the proposition nation, then you are wrong and they are wrong too. GQ, GQ, your book really uh, meditates on the idea of memory, what we remember, how we memorialize, and how through that memory we pass on our own history and we empower ourselves to live in our present. Why do you think that framework was so resonant this year? Clint Smith, I think part of it is certainly that we are in this moment where we're having the history wars, which are sort of embedded within the culture wars. And there are these conversations about critical race theory and how that is shaping the educational landscape. Even when we know that critical race theory is being used as a boogeyman to instill fear and a sense of a threat to one's position with the larger American project. See, this is the thing. Oh, we're just afraid of losing our power. This was all about. If it wasn't for afraid of, we weren't afraid of losing power. We'd embrace critical race. See, it's, it's all about power now. I will say that he's right about one thing. It is about power. It's about the other side trying to gain power or use it for power purposes. It's always about power. I've said on this show that if you want to look at American history, it's always a struggle for power. Which side is going to win and control the apparatus of the government? You know how you stop all that? You know how you stop it? You do smash this stuff at the local level. You say, you know what? No, this is not our culture of this area. No, no, go away. Be quiet. Sit down. Shut up. No, shut up. That's what you do. No, shut up. That's, I mean, that should be the phrase for everybody. And I've said it before. No, shut up. It taps into the worst existential fears of many people across the country. And there is this battle happening. It has happened throughout American history about how we tell the story of this country, who we are including in the story, and what we are leaving out of the story, and what are the implica implications that that has through the landscape of our society today. I think part of what's happened is over the past several years of the Black Lives Matter movement, there have been more people, not everyone, but certainly more, whose understanding of the history of this country has been complicated, has been nuanced, has been expanded, and people are being more honest about what that history is. You see, what's being left out of this is that this stuff hasn't been taught before. That's what's being left out of all this. All of these things, this is all new. Nobody thought about the history of slavery in America until the 1619 Project came out. Are you serious? We've been talking about this stuff for years. Historians have always talked about this stuff. But I will say this. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is a quote that says, uh, the, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase, but uh, if a historian fails to intelligently interest the, the, the public in the past, then all his learning is valueless, except insofar as it educates himself. 
So if a historian doesn't try to educate the public, which is our job, this is why I do this podcast. It's why I do popular history over academic history. Because you see, Genovese, great academic historian, but what was his reach outside of the academy? He wrote for some things at times, you know, popular things here and there. But his efforts were primarily in the academy, and he was never going to turn them. If Genovese had decided that he was going to turn his efforts to the general public, things might be different right now. And this is where the left has actually been pretty clever in this. You know what? Yeah, we're going to write in the academic journals, but you know what else we're going to do? We're going to get on Twitter. And we're going to be Kevin Cruz on Twitter, and we're going to be hip and fun, and we're going to make fun of things. We're going to do stuff. Now, they can't meme. They stink at it. But we're going to get out there, and we're going to try to interest the public in what we do in a way that's bigger than just academic journals. Now, there aren't too many right-wingers in academic journals either. Okay, don't get me wrong. And there aren't too many people that actually do good history in academic journals either. But what we need to be doing on our side is trying to work within the public to make these things happen. This is what, uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, Southerners did recognize this. And they did become interested in public history. That's what these monuments were. It's public history. Let's do public displays of history. Let's do that. Because that's how people are going to remember things. So what's happened is the left has figured out, well, you know what? If we get involved in public stuff and with the emotive society that we have, we're going to win. We're going to win. But people have been talking about these things for years. You know, Fogel and Engerman, they were on Donahue, I think, for, for goodness sake. You know, so uh, you know, Time on the Cross was on that. So people have been talking about this stuff. It's not that people haven't. It's just that uh, we think that people have been talking about these things. Even Southerners. This is, the, this is the amazing thing to me. When you go back and read some of this quote-unquote lost cause material, they talk about these things a lot. They talk about how important slavery was. They talk about this stuff. They talk about it all the time. They have a different view than, say, the abolitionists would have had, but they, ha they talk about it. All these things have been talked about since time immemorial in the United States. It's not new. It's just that these people are making it sound new, nuanced, expanded. There's been a failure, I think, with this cartoon version of America, the Lincolnian cartoon version. It's been bad, don't get me wrong. There has been a failure there. On both sides. But certainly, I mean, we've been talking about these things. I think the impl implication of that is that you have millions of people who are in an ongoing process of recalibrating their previous understanding of what America has been and what America is today. As a result, I think you have this incredible amount of pushback from people whom asking questions of American history is an existential threat because they have to ask questions of, of themselves and they have to reassess their own sense of who they are and how they fit into that. When you have been told a specific story your entire life about how you and your family and your community fit into the American story, and then people come in and tell a different story of America or a story that includes a lot of facets that were previously left out, then it threatens your sense of self. It threatens your identity. Uh, so he's saying that his story is a threat to how people think of themselves. And people get upset about that. Um, 
it threatens who they are. Their identity is who they are. Well, when you tell false stories, yeah, I mean, this is this is problematic. It's troubling. And I think a lot of these things are, in some of the ways they do it, the proposition nation nonsense is a false story. It's a false story of America. And saying that America was founded in 1619, which is what the 1619 people originally did, that's a false story. But regardless. David Thorson, who's one of the docents at Monticello, told me that when you tell a different story about Jefferson, then you're telling a different story about America. When people have to ask questions about or reassess their understanding of Jefferson, they have to reassess their understanding of themselves. GQ, of course, because people are invested in a very intimate and emotional way with the stories about the country that they live in and the standing that they have within that country. Get what he said there. An intimate and emotional way because we emote. It's not just, well, I mean, yeah, Jefferson did some things we don't agree with, but these are the great things about the man, and that makes him great. So he does things that we don't agree with today. He did said things we don't agree with today. But when you emote... That become oh my gosh, I can't believe Jefferson did that. I can't believe Jefferson said that. If you accept man as an imperfect creature, an imperfect being, then you accept failings. You accept things that you don't like. You accept things about people. That just becomes that. I mean, how can I say, for example, uh, uh, Alex- uh, Alexander the Great is great? Why is he Alexander the Great? Do we, do we, would we want to live like the Macedonians in 2021? I wouldn't. But he still was a great man. Would we want to be that warlike in 2021? I wouldn't. But Alexander the Great still was a great man. who did some things that we would not agree with today. It doesn't make him not great. <laughs> what about Charlemagne, Charles the Great? Carl de Gross, was he great? Yes. Great king. A man who did extraordinary things. Would we want to live like Charlemagne today? Charlemagne would be envious of our modern conveniences. Would we want to live like Charlemagne? No. Still a great man. We'll talk about greatness next week when we get to Lee and that part of it. But And so, as you know, we're in this moment where so many people are now re-examining that. And, they're re- and that re-examination is necessarily going to be a messy and complicated process that involves some lashing out and some backlash. It's just temper tantrums. I don't like what you're doing. That's, what the, that's how they define people who say, uh, you know, describe people who disagree with them. They're just temper tantrums. Lashing out. It's just a toddler's temper tantrum. These are two-year-olds because they're rational, intelligent adults in the room or re-examining these things and because we're re-examining but really they're being the emotional buffoons they're being the ones who are stuck in arrested development they're the adolescents whose feelings are hurt about this feeling my feelings are hurt about what thomas jefferson did he's, he's hurt my feelings so i we have to re-examine we, we was, these these people are they, these people did bad things to us these people did bad things to people so we can't like them who's the toddler Absolutely. And I think that there are people who navigate these questions differently, right? You have a group of people for whom there's a sense of that they didn't know what they didn't know. There has been a uh, systemic and structural failure in educational system that is part tied to the success of historical and ideological projects like the lost cause that have made it that so many people do not understand the history of slavery in any way that is commensurate with the actual impact that it had on this country. Um. <laughs> No, I, I think people have been told this stuff. In fact, 
What's really interesting is if you uh, go out to more white communities out in the Midwest, they're more in line with the leftist version of America than anyone else. And when you look at Hillsdale College and the Straussians, they're promoting the Lincolnian myth. I mean, all this stuff is there. It's all there. Where is this stuff not being taught? What they're really upset about is that uh, at some point, people have said there's more complexity to the story of the war than just slavery. This is what, because that has been the story. <laughs> That's been it. Or, you know what? They said some things about Reconstruction that we don't like. They, they discounted Reconstruction governments because they were racist. This is what it comes down to, you see. They're the ones that are having emotional temper tantrums about this stuff. It has nothing to do with them. There's no reflection on them. There's no reflection on Clint Smith. And I think when these people are confronted with new information, there's nothing new about what these people are saying. It's all just, it's all been there. It's not new information. We mean new interpretations of these things. Or, how, how should I say this, regurgitating uh, 19th century liberal interpretations of these things. Because that's exactly what we're getting. It's the slave power. You know what? All you got to do is go back and read speeches from the North in the 1850s, and you got the exact same thing. <laughs> it's all right there. It's not new information. It's new interpretations. When these people go to Monticello or a walking tour of the Underground Railroad in New York, they're often confronting information that they have not previously encountered. How not? This stuff has been taught for years. How are they not encountering it? You know what? Even when it comes to the Hemming situation, that was even discussed by Dumas Malone. Right? This stuff has been around for years. James Callender made the accusations in the early 19th century, and then people talked about it over and over again. They did. But there is also an openness with which to receive that information and then to take that information on and have the his history inform how they make sense of themselves and the landscape of inequality across this country. It's all systemic inequality. These are the people infatuated with this stuff. The people writing these, these are the people infatuated with it. They can't let it go. There are also a lot of people with whom you can share all the empirical evidence all the primary source documents, all the historical fact, and it won't matter. Well, I agree, like you. <laughs> like, like Clint Smith. Because I could do the same thing. I could show you all the empirical evidence. I could show you all the primary source documents. I could show you all the historical fact, and it won't matter because you'll still be a dunderhead. Because the reason they believe what they believe is not because they don't have information. Is because that information threatens the position that they have taken on for themselves, within their family, within their society. Like Clint Smith. It's almost like this is a self-reflective essay. See, that's what these, these people are projecting in many ways. They are so wrapped up in this because they know that what they're doing isn't necessarily right. What they're saying is ideological. It's not objective. It's not based on reality. Because if you showed them things that confront this. No, 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 no. That's just lost cause ideology. No, 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 no. That's not true. That's just people that are systemically racist in saying these things. That's not true. You can't, you can't say that. That's not true. Because I believe this. Because I have this document. So, 
who's being who's being emotionally immature here? It is a truly existential threat to how someone understands who they are in this world. This is that paragraph is projecting from Clint Smith. This is exactly who he is, and he's just saying that's what everybody else is. Because if you blame that on everybody else, then it doesn't matter about what I am. That is a thing that's different, difficult for a lot of people to accept, and so they push back against it. We see a 21st century iteration of that today. We saw it after the Civil War. People attempt to distort history, distort information, distort fact, because it allows them to continue to tell a story about themselves and their community that they're deeply invested in. You mean like what you're doing, essentially, in the 1619 Project. <laughs> distort history, distort information, and distort fact. That's exactly what you've been doing. Again, this is all projection. GQ, it's also interesting to me that this time there's almost an embarrassment of riches in terms of brilliant black public intellectuals, journalists, writers, people who are pushing this conversation forward. There does seem to be among the opposition a sort of hyper-focus that is often either very semantic or pedantic. It's Nicole Hannah-Jones having to spend two years talking about one sentence in one essay of the 1619 Project or the number of times people want to analyze exactly whether this diversity training does this thing or what is Ibram X. Kendi really calling for when he talks about anti-racism. Oftentimes, it doesn't feel like we're having a good-faith conversation around these issues, despite the fact that there are so many people who are doing this work in extremely rigorous intellectual good-faith good ways. Yeah. Uh, this is because what they're doing is wrong. And, of course, they're going to say it's all because of race. None of these people are honest. They're just, they're just afraid of black intellectuals. That's not true. It's not true at all. But this is what they're trying to do, right? Uh, I want to get down uh, to down the essay a little bit. And he says, what compelled you to write this book at this time? He says, in 2017, I was watching several Confederate statues. He already said this. I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. What are the implications of that? What does it mean to, that, I get, that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. My middle school is named after a leader of the Confederacy. My parents still live on a street named after somebody who owned over 115 enslaved people. Symbols and names and, uh, are not just symbols. They are rel reflective of the stories that people tell, and those stories shape the narratives that communities carry, and those narratives shape public policy, and public policy shapes the material conditions of people's lives. That's not to say that taking down a 60-foot-tall statue of Rodri Lee is going to suddenly erase the racial wealth gap. But all these things are part of an ecosystem of ideas and stories that help shape the story that we tell about this country's history. The historian Walter Johnson says that New Orleans is a memorial to slavers. The slave people built these levees, and slave people built the streets, and slave people built so many of the buildings that stand in our famous French Quarter. I wanted to understand who was telling the story of New Orleans, and then I sort of broadened it out and started thinking about how other historical sites that are intimately tied to the history are telling the story, or failing to tell the story of what happened there. The thing is... If you go to most historical sites now, they do this all the time. They do it all the time. Uh, go to Fort Pickens in, uh, is a, you know, in, in uh, Pensacola, Florida. And they talk about it right there. I mean, this is how the floor, fort was built. Look at, all these, look at all these people that were slaves that were building the fort. I mean, I wonder if we do that with other things. You know, but, or we just have to do that here. 
Who do you see as your constituency? Another way to ask this is, what are you writing a book like this for? I believe that if you're going to spend four years working on anything, then in some ways you yourself have to be the primary audience. Yes, of course. He's writing to write 120,000 words about something other, over the course of many years. It has to be something that you're obsessed with. So again, he's admitting what he's doing here. He's obsessed with this. He's the one that's obsessed with it. Not most Americans are not obsessed with this stuff. They're like, oh, yeah, okay. Sounds good. All right. Yeah, all right. Okay, whatever. He's obsessed. He's race-obsessed, and not just that, uh, he's obsessed with, as I said, he's projecting that essay of being ideological. So I'm writing this for a 15-year-old version of Clint who grew up surrounded by these statues, who grew up in a city that people called the murder capital of the nation, and talked about the cultural decay of the public housing projects. Um, so was that because of the statues, Clint? No. What That was because of something that your community was doing at the time, not because of a statue. So much of the language about what was wrong with New Orleans was implicitly a commentary on what people thought was wrong with black people. Growing up in that context, I wish that I had the history and the language with which to push back against so much of this pathology and free myself from a sort of psychological or emotional paralysis that I felt. Again, emotional. It's all about, emo this didn't make me feel good. So change it. Right? It's not the, the structure that's making this happen to you. It's you that's making this happen to you. It's, it's, it's not taking a role in, it's saying every, it's victim, it's victimhood. It's capital V victimhood. Everything that happens to me is because of somebody else doing something. Now, I want to get to the last uh, couple uh, paragraphs here because I think this is enlightening. The last question What are you reading? I just finished reading Ron Chernow's Ulysses S. Grant biography, which was incredible. Chernow. Uh, and you look at the rights and infatuation uh, with Grant, and their fascination with Grant, and this is what you have. When you write a book like this, you spend a lot of time reading a chapter or two of books that you wanted to spend more time on. I hadn't had the opportunity to do a real in-depth dive on Grant in the way that I wanted to, but I listened to this incredible podcast, 1865, and Season 2 is focused on the presidency of Grant. I think Grant was always sort of overshadowed by the legacy of Lincoln and the, and the way that I've been taught. Writing the book and then listening to this podcast really piqued my interest. Grant is really a remarkable historical figure who I think is getting his due more now than he has in previous decades. Uh, he was also, of course, highly corrupt and a terrible president. If you want to read a really good book on Grant, go read Phil Lee's book on Grant. Uh, I also talk about Grant in my American President's class at McClanahan Academy. It's not very flowery or laudatory of Grant. As a Union general, he beat the Confederacy. He beat the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan. He arguably had more support newly emancipated free people than many other people in his position might have had at the time. He wrote his memoirs while dying of throat cancer. He was basically a broke store owner or a store clerk when he became drafted in the Union Army or became part of the Union Army. Why, um, why was that? Because he was booted out for being a drunk. His entire story, the way he grappled with alcoholism, it's just so fascinating. Did, did you get to the part where he was a slave owner there, uh, Clint Smith? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've left that out, but I mean, <laughs> okay. It was just beautiful, compelling narrative. That and David Blight's Frederick Douglass book are probably two of my favorite biographies that I've read. See, David Blight. There's David Blight. This is the issue, right? So conservatives that run around promoting Grant are... Piling right in. And Frederick Douglass, you have uh, Kilmeade. Two most important people are Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. 
Well, how is that any different than Clint Smith? And Kilme is supposed to be a conservative, right? You've just, you've just sold your soul to the other side. It's what people don't get. That's why I wanted to talk about this essay today and kind of bookend Reconstruction, which is being now distorted because of Foner, and then this, which is David Blight and others on the right. So bookend those together. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. Unless you want to get the Abbeville podcast tomorrow, abbevilleinstitute.org. But if not, that's all things Southern. If not, I'll see you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.